The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome back a wonderful colleague and friend, Mr. Mark Winnie. He has worked for 42 years as a community food activist, writer, and trainer, and he has dedicated his professional life to enabling people and their communities to find solutions to their own food problems. From 1979 to 2003, Mr. Winnie was the executive director of the Hartford Food System, a private nonprofit agency that works on food and hunger issues in the Hartford, Connecticut area. He was also a member of the U.S. delegation to the 2000 World Conference on Food Security in Rome and is a 2001 recipient of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary's Plow Honor Award. From 2002 until 2004, he was a Food and Society Policy Fellow, which is where our paths first crossed. Mr. Winnie currently writes, speaks, and consults extensively on community food system topics, including hunger and food insecurity, local and regional agriculture, community food assessment, and food policy. And since 2013, he has served as a senior advisor to the Food Policy Networks Project at the prestigious John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. His essays and opinion pieces have appeared in the Hartford Current, the Boston Globe, The Nation, In These Times, Orion Magazine, Successful Farming, and more. He is the author of numerous books, including Stand Together or Starve Alone, Unity and Chaos in the U.S. Food Movement. Most recently, we spoke about his latest book, Food Town USA. He holds a bachelor's degree from Bates College and a master's degree from Southern New Hampshire University. He presently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you can read his beautiful work at www.markwinnie.com. Welcome, Mark. I am thrilled to have you back. And I read one of your latest pieces, and I thought, we have to talk about this. And it was a summary of the White House Hunger Conference. It was titled, The Dispatch from a Man Who Wasn't There. And for those who were not aware, the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health just took place on September 28th. And it had an honorable mission of ending hunger improving nutrition and physical activity, and reducing diet-related diseases and disparities. You, however, took a very deep dive and pulled back the curtain on some points that weren't present. Why did you choose to write about this particular hunger conference? Probably because I wasn't there, (laughs) (laughs) which means that I really wanted to be there because I felt that it I do feel, and I continue to feel, that it's an important event. I think that all the people, including President Biden, who wanted this conference to take place, were very sincere in their determination to end hunger in the U.S. But I continue to feel, uh, as I have throughout my career, that the approach we use to end hunger is just not right. 
we're not going down the right road. We continue to talk a lot about hunger as if it existed somehow by itself off on its own little compartment and all we had to do was get all these little, all these programs right and that that would be the end of that problem and we could move on. However, it's much more complicated than that, as most of us know. And I was hoping that this conference would do a better job of unpacking all the problems around hunger and, more importantly, the the approaches that have evolved over, well, since really the 1960s, since uh, John F. Kennedy's first week in office, in fact, when the food stamp program, as we know it, was founded. We came up short, in my opinion. I really felt the need to write about it and, and sort of provide my own analysis, which is based on almost 50 years now of work in the food security field. Right. Well, I wanted to go back to your very first job, which was the executive director of the Hartford Food System. And I wanted to ask you what you took away from that work that informed this most recent piece. Oh, that's a great question. In my experience in Hartford, I'm, you sort of have Hartford, Connecticut, you know, which in fact is a rather poor city. It was then and it remains so now in spite of its label of being the insurance capital of America. But in fact, that's not even true anymore. It's a, a lot of poverty. And I'm in my mid to late 20s, starting out on my first real serious job and filled with all kinds of ideals and good intentions, and boy, did I get a lesson uh, quickly in how difficult it is to you know, go into a, a place that has so many problems, and you come in with you know, wearing this food hat, and you think that you can basically solve these what some of these big problems associated with poverty, with declining schools, with few good-paying jobs, and so forth, you know, with community gardens and farmers markets and food banks and so forth, and or advocating for more food stamps or more WIC enrollments, I discovered very quickly that the complexities of poverty, the complexities of our economic and social systems, and the complexities of any given community were so much that, you know, food was an important part, of course, but you know, you knew that you were just playing a small part. You could mitigate some of the problems associated with poverty, but you certainly weren't going to dig out the roots of an entrenched system that has evolved in this country for a long, long time. So I wanted to, you know, really dig deeper and find out if, in fact, there isn't more we can do. And, in fact, could we use food as a leverage to try to really address those core problems? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm always looking for information that's missing. You know, like what questions or what organizations weren't at the table that should have been. When I saw the title of the conference, it was the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. I was looking for agriculture. Yeah. Probably because of our work with the Kellogg Foundation and the Food and Society Policy Fellowship, that's really where I learned to look at agriculture more. But if we look at what the real root problems are to a lot of our chronic diseases, absolutely what we're putting in our mouths matters. But why is it that all of those foods that are so harmful to our health 
are the cheapest and most available, especially to poor communities? That was one of my questions. Yeah, the thing that I felt where it really fell short and where we did not do justice to what we have learned over the last several decades is this thing we call the food system. You know, we have learned that how we get food, how we, what we eat, who produces food, whether it's being grown or manufactured, and then all the dozens of food programs that are available to the federal government or sometimes at the national and local level, how all of this interacts, and what is the relationship between food and health, between food and the economy, between food and agriculture. When we talk about a food system, this is what we're talking about. I didn't see that well represented at this conference. All right. And I probably should note that I did watch it online with a lot of other people. I wasn't there physically, but I certainly watched the proceedings and I followed everything that had been written about the subject. And it really came up short in regard to how does food, what's the relationship between food and the environment? I mean, we know now that our food system is contributing somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of our carbon emissions in this country. You know, we took a sort of narrow view of how we look at the relationship between food and our diet and health during the conference. And then I think there was just not enough time and attention paid to the fact that so much of our of the food industry is not committed to getting rid of a lot of the really unhealthy, dangerous food, in fact, that they continue to market and make and market and want us to consume because that contributes to their bottom line. That discussion was missing. So when we, what I feel like if we learned anything over the last many years, it is this idea of a food system and how all these parts connect. But that learning wasn't reflected in this conference. Mm-hmm. It was, again, it was sort of a, you know, a straight path that takes you but to providing more calories through food assistance programs, some progress with respect to eating better, eating healthier food. I mean, that, to a large degree, I think that was reflected in the conference, but very little almost lip service to some of the underlying poverty causes like low wages, lack of good jobs, just not simply not enough income. So again, it's this a lack of demonstrating any lack of real progress in terms of our thinking about and what we have learned about the food system and how it performs. Yeah, and it's such that a was shame. The disappointment. It's such a shame, Mark. And as you beautifully point out in this piece, and I will provide a link to this because I want everybody to read this and really think about this especially as we get into this season that a lot of journalists call the hunger season, where we've got so much attention on making sure people have food around the holidays. But with regard to climate and agriculture, you write, when the irrigation water has dried up and the heat has withered the crops, it won't matter how many food stamps you have. And when the food industry, who with some anti-hunger advocates oppose regulations and restrictions that would reduce the consumption of unhealthy food, you have to wonder if real health progress can ever be made. Right. That's where I'm coming down. And, you know, I sometimes wonder, are advocates 
who are, again, good colleagues and well-intentioned people, just choosing to ignore the importance of climate change and its impact on food and our food food supply? Are they choosing to ignore the fact that we just have so much awful food available and which is often the cheapest food? And doing that as a compromise somehow, willing to sort of turn away from those realities in order to secure more money for a food assistance program, whether it's SNAP or WIC or or school meals. So, I mean, I don't, I hate to be cynical about these things, but I, at the same time, that the power of the logic here is what sways me. And I'm not seeing good, thoughtful colleagues taking a stand in terms of what's really important and fighting for, really, really fighting, you know, tooth and nail for the kind of food system that we need. And, more importantly, fighting for the kind of economy we need and social well-being of the people that we have in this country. Instead, of we can't continue to expect that food insecurity will be solved and poverty will be solved because all we're doing is increasing the value of the SNAP program or extending the benefits of school meals to more children. Yes, those things are important, but that's not enough. It's never going to get we're going to have another conference in 50 years on hunger if we continue down this same road. Exactly. Mark, let me take a break because we are halfway through. I just want to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Mark Winnie, who has close to 50 years experience as a community food activist. He's an author of several wonderful books on this topic, and he has dedicated his professional life to enabling people and their communities to find solutions to their own food problems. So, Mark, you bring up a couple of issues that I want to touch on. One is, is anybody asking the really root cause questions? You know, why are people hungry? And rather than throwing Band-Aids to food pantries and food banks and donating more food, yes, we want to make sure that people don't suffer from hunger, but from a public health lens, you know, our mission is always to find the root cause, you know, stop the bleeding instead of continuing to apply Band-Aids. Do you think that the question of why people are hungry was ever really explored? It was touched upon. I mean, people will always make references to wages. They'll make references to, or they'll, they'll actually show some demonstrate that some projects that have been undertaken have shown promise for actually providing, going to the root cause of the problem. You know, there was one speaker whose name I can't remember from Louisiana. I believe she was running a some kind of social service program in Louisiana. And much of the emphasis of her program was on workforce development, bringing good-paying jobs to her community. Yeah, food was still a part of it, but it was really taking the individual who may be receiving food stamps and working with them in other all kinds of ways to try to get them out of poverty. So there were those kinds of examples. There are good examples like that around the country. And, you know, I've been involved myself in developing a number of projects that try to do multiple things. You know, they're trying to provide good food to people. They're trying to help local farmers at the same time by purchasing that from 
those farmers from people who are hungry. Uh, they're trying to develop new businesses and with good paying jobs. And then they will increasingly they'll start to show up at, say, their state capital and advocate for programs that are, are going to get down to the root causes. It will increase the minimum wage or you know, bring the living wage ordinances to cities. So people are paying attention to those things. So there is good news in that regard. But I'm concerned that, again, we, we put most of our eggs in this federal food assistance basket, which is sort of the same old, same old. Yes, it helps people. But it's not enough to ever end the problem. And we sort of pretend that it is. We act like it is. It takes more than tweaking, say, the SNAP program and then to really to end hunger and address poverty. And that's, that's where I, I fear we're, you know, we're just continuing to sort of sing the same old songs as we go forward. Right. Well, I want to give a plug to your last book, Food Town USA, because that book really did identify such opportunities for hope for economic strength using the food system. So there are great examples, as you mentioned. I do want to talk about SNAP, which is, of course, the shorthand for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as food stamps. And I do think it's important from a, because I'm a dietitian, I want to bring up an issue that drives me crazy and that is that the program was meant to be a supplemental nutrition assistance program. So we could have put restrictions, real restrictions, on what SNAP could purchase. So there are things that SNAP can't be used for, like alcohol and tobacco, and that's understandable. But it's interesting that SNAP is available for things like soft drinks and snack foods, the very foods that absolutely do not fit into any form of a healthy diet. When you look at the American Heart Association recommendations, for example, you know, one can of soda, it's got too much sugar to be acceptable. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is it that these SNAP dollars, which is the biggest chunk of the farm bill, why is it that the American taxpayer is basically subsidizing the food industry so that they can continue to make profits on the backs of poor people who are going to suffer with chronic diseases. Yeah, it's perplexing to say the least. Another thing that I don't think the conference did justice to is that while they did talk a lot, particularly in their written materials, about the health consequences that we're seeing now as a result of our poor diets, I don't think enough attention was paid to that during the conference itself. I mean, the numbers are just absolutely frightening when you look at obesity and, and overweight and uh, the rise of diabetes in this country. We're looking at numbers in the 60 to 70 percent range of people who are going to be overweight or are now overweight or obese. That is practically like writing a death certificate for somebody at this point. And that, to me, is a much bigger problem right now in terms of you know, from a public health perspective than so-called hunger and food insecurity. And while there are certain ways, reasons and ways to tie them together, we just didn't pay enough attention to that looming health crisis that we have in this country, which is costing us billions and billions of dollars every year, and often public dollars as well. Our overall health insurance premiums are certainly linked to that the high cost of treating diet-related illnesses. 
illnesses which are entirely preventable. So when we look at a public program like SNAP and you say, all right, you can spend your SNAP benefits on anything you want with the exclusions you mentioned, we have to really ask a hard question. Should that be the way that we use our public dollars, knowing that certain foods you're eating are going to take you down the road to diabetes and other diet-related illnesses. It's like there's a death toll, really, associated with much of, uh, of what we're eating. And looking at the comparison now between the, the numbers of people who are, say, obese or have diabetes compared to, say, the 1970s, it's really scary. I mean, we've seen a drastic increase in the levels of those illnesses and those problems. And it just says, well, that's, I mean, that's why I took a strong position in my piece about that, that we really have to stop through any means possible, frankly, the food industry from producing such, so much unhealthy food. And so much of our practices have been around incentivizing people to eat healthy food. Well, incentives are good. It's better to encourage somebody to eat well than to hammer them over the head with by telling them they shouldn't eat other things. But, you know, at the same time, we need to be realistic and say, maybe this problem is getting so severe. You know, one-third of all recruits for the military are turned down because of diet and weight and dietary problems that, you know, we have to act. We have to take public action. We may have to be much more restrictive when it comes to both our public health programs and food assistance programs like SNAP and the industry itself. Right. You know, it's interesting to see how language is used against any kind of restrictions. So, for example, if you're in a circle where you're talking about having, quote-unquote, restrictions on what SNAP dollars can be used for, you'll have people who will say, oh, you don't want to take away people's choice, right? That word choice always comes up. But I think we have to go back and focus on the fact that this is a supplemental program. It was never meant to cover all of a person's food budget. So if a person wants to buy soda with their own dollars, that's fine. But I want my tax dollars used for good. For instance, the WIC program, that's you're only allowed to buy certain things with your WIC vouchers. That's right. And they're all based on good, sound science and health and dietary practices. The same with school meals now. I mean, used to be school meals were pretty atrocious, but I think there's been a vast improvement, and they now are required to meet certain nutrition standards. Why not the same for SNAP? SNAP is our biggest program. I'm not sure of the exact number. Don't quote me. 50 to 60 billion, maybe more, every year of public dollars. You know, this is where we should be targeting our more restrictions around what you can use your SNAP dollars for. I totally agree, Mark. And I just want to throw out a statistic that I found. There was a 2016 USDA report that found that sweetened beverages, including soda, are the most commonly purchased items by SNAP recipients across the country. So our tax dollars are benefiting the corporations that are producing these low-nutrient, problematic foods in our food system that are leading to chronic diseases. About that SNAP dollar that is used to buy soda and other unhealthy food products, 
and maybe it's a young family, maybe there are children, and what's going to be happening, what are the chances that that family, those people are going to have diet-related health problems later in life. And if they're still receiving some kind of public assistance, and perhaps on the Medicaid, who is going to be paying for that? It'll be the public sector. It'll be the, it'll be the taxpayer. So there's some irony here in the fact that we provide public dollars to feed people food that will make them sick later in life, and we will then be picking up the health care cost of treating them for that illness. So I think there's many good arguments to be made about with respect to coming up with more restrictive application of our federal dollars when it comes to food assistance programs. Right. And I think we also have to ask how those food purchases support the kind of agriculture that we know needs to change and how right. and how our agriculture is so disconnected from or the kind of agriculture that we support with our tax dollars, how that is so divorced from our dietary guidelines. Absolutely. I mean, I think I do think that we're we're seeing some improvement at, in the, at the local level. I mean, look at the growth in, say, farmers markets. Look at the growth in farm to school programs. And in fact, some of the federal incentive programs, like basically vouchers, incentives, and double up bucks, and right. so forth, that have been used to encourage people to buy locally grown food. I mean, those are all good things. And by no means are they large enough. By no means are by themselves are they going to be impactful enough. But I do believe that uh, thinking more locally and you know supporting regional food economies is part of a much larger health strategy, and it's one that would benefit local agriculture, but it would also benefit communities through jobs and economies, and it would certainly benefit our own individual health. I think we'd all be eating better if we had stronger regional food economies. Absolutely. And Food Town USA brings that out in a beautiful story-like way. Mark, we just have a minute left, and I want to make sure that you leave our audience with any last message that you want to make sure they hear. Just because I may sound like a, a doom and gloom kind of guy, don't become pessimistic. Don't give up. Continue to support local food systems, local agriculture. Continue to do what you can to help people in need. I'm not saying that we not do that at all, particularly in the holiday season. And, but use it as a time to reflect on the bigger story and why we have this kind of food system in this country and how these programs have evolved. Don't take any program that we have operating now just because it, we're spending billions and billions of dollars on it for granted and not ask questions about its origins. Don't assume that it's the be-all and end-all and that it by itself is the answer. You know, Try to think deeper and think bigger. And I think you begin to unlock a whole different set of solutions. Exactly. Mark, thank you so much for being with me today. We've got to close. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank Mr. Mark Winnie. He has worked for close to 50 years as a community food activist. He's an author and a trainer dedicated to the power of food policy councils. His excellent piece, The White House Hunger Conference, Dispatch from a Man Who Wasn't There, is incredibly important reading, especially during the hunger season and beyond. Mark, thank you so much for being my guest. I'll provide a link to this and to your website. Thanks so much, Belinda. It's great to be on your show.